This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Hello, my name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Insights at Friends of Europe and the moderator for this session. Thank you all for coming along. Um, it gives me the greatest pleasure to invite you to participate in this, which is, you know, what should be in the EU's new toolbox, its, its new mandate, and what should it be thinking about and in, to really uh, understand its relationship between member states but also, fundamentally, its relationship to citizens. Um, we have brought you here today to launch this. So it gives me a great pleasure. Vision for Europe. Um, you won't have a chance to read it, I'm, I'm unfortunately, at the moment, but we, what we have today for you is all those who've contributed in one way or the other to provide the content for it. It genuinely has been a labour of love uh, for us. As a, as a think tank, Friends of Europe, we thought long and hard about the role we can play in shaping, influencing, informing the new EU mandate. What should be our role? And as a think tank, just to be clear, we're not like the classic other think tanks in terms of being a bridge between academia and policy making. We see ourselves very much as a think tank being a bridge between policy, its making, its evaluation and impact on society and citizens. That's what we do day in, day out, in thinking through how policy could be made better, what its impact is, and how it can be evaluated, and what should we be thinking about in terms of improving it. So in that context, um, at, um, uh, at Friends of Europe, we really thought long and hard about the role we could play. And we came to the conclusion that we, don't want to, we didn't want to uh, produce a manifesto. Um, uh, we, what we wanted to do was generate a way of thinking and working, which we believe should be adopted by the EU. And what I mean by that is that this, this document, when you get a chance to read it in full, is made from top down, bottom up. And what I mean by that is that we've, we've, we've uh, canvassed the views of politicians, we've canvassed the views of commissioners, ex-commissioners, heads of cabinet, um, heads of uh, global companies, etc. Um, and then we've spoken to policymakers at the middle level across Europe. We surveyed them. And more importantly, what I mean by the bottom-up is we consulted citizens, we involved citizens, we polled citizens on what they uh, think it should be important for the EU, what it should focus on, and importantly, what would improve its confidence. What we have is, now I'm going to shut up in a minute, but what I want to do is bring that voice of citizens into this room um, through the survey, that, the, the poll that we conducted. And then what I'm going to do is invite um, Pascal Lamy, who is on the screen here also, um, to uh, introduce the report and actually explain why it's important to have had the report constructed in the way that we have He's someone who's our, uh, on our board uh, of trustees and he's been working uh, directly with me and leading a team to get us to this point where we're launching this report today. So I'm very grateful to him and all the contributors that are here present today um, uh, to help um, shape and influence um, our future agenda. Um, in terms of the, the voice of citizens, so if I can... Um, I'm, I haven't got my clicker with me, which is really bad, actually. If I start with the first um, slide. There's my clicker. Hang on. Let me see. Make this work. This is the top-line message that we got from our citizens' poll. Really, very, very clearly. Um, and it's been a kind of a mantra since we conducted the poll in last September, and then we launched it in October at our State of Europe roundtable. Without change and reform, it will remain irrelevant and, uh, to the majority of citizens. Let me tell you why. Here's the division in terms of 
the Europeans, you know, feeling very divided about the role of the EU. And you can see here that, you know, there are politics at play, regional issues at play, uh, but there is uh, a sense of the division about its primary role, and that is very much around geopol geopolitical lines, but also economic lines. This was a fascinating one. And, you know, people, when you think about... At the moment, we're so dominated and drowned by a populist, nationalist agenda that everyone's constantly thinking about what they are saying. Um, even, I think, the left to its demise and, and to potential failure is on, honestly only focused on thinking about responding to the right and populisms rather than defining its own ideology and its own pathway. However, isn't it interesting? 90% of citizens feel that Europe should be more than a single market. And here's that thing about uh, sovereignty. No real general concern about decision-making happening at the EU-wide level. Yet, if you were to listen to populists, they'd say, we want borders, we want greater sovereignty. And here, citizens across. So let me, let me be really clear. This result, this, this survey, this poll, was conducted by an independent company called Dahlia. It's representative, weighted by population size, looked at gender, looked at you know, all, all demographics across the piece um, and, and age across the piece. And this is representative of what most of European citizens think. We asked them this question. We were really keen um, to understand, if you were to rub Europe out, if you didn't have Europe in place, would it make a difference to you? And we asked them, and this is what they said. 64%, 64% aren't convinced that life would be any different without the EU. Quite a startling uh, and, 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 you know, uh, arresting uh, result. The hope is young people, as you can see, the under 35-year-olds, the millennials and others, and women, um, actually uh, don't believe that, that that's the case. We asked uh, citizens, what should the EU, the new EU mandate, focus on? And out of a list of issues like education, health, uh, housing, a whole, whole range of others, um, this is what came out. Keeping peace, creating jobs, tackling climate change, top three. This came out last autumn. It was interesting. We got a lot of, lot of flack from others who said, well, Eurobarometers, others don't say that because migration is a top issue. Six months later or five months later, look at the poll results right now. Most of them are saying this. And actually, migration isn't the top issue for citizens. By most of the polls that have come out in the past five weeks, they're all saying the same thing. Um, we asked them what would improve their trust in the EU. And these are the two top things that came up. And there's no rocket science to this. All of you know this. Uh, but actually, it's really important that the poll, uh, when you actually ask citizens on the ground, across Europe, representatively said, these are the two things. Uh, more involvement in decision-making and greater budget transparency. So that's why we came up with that statement about, you know, without change and reform, the EU will remain irrelevant. Um, and we've seen some interesting spiky um, um, results in the past six months, if you like. Uh, if, we took, if we just put Brexit out of this room for a moment, we don't want it to be infecting this particular debate. But, you know, when we think about what's been happening in the Netherlands, what's been happening in Spain, Elsa, we are getting some surprises along the way, which I think should make us think about what people are feeling about political processes and political parties and how they serve or are they, how they are relevant to their needs of the day. Uh, and sometimes emotions are, are, are key in this regard. So... 
I'm going to hand over to Pascal. Um, good to see you. Can you hear me? You need to unmute yourself. Ah, thank you. Very well, very warm welcome to you. He's in Tunisia, by the way. Look at that. Look, he looks astonishingly well. You bugger, you look really very good. You have promised me. So those of you who've, who've followed Pascal's fame over the past a week or so, who went viral by doing this and like, like that, he has promised me, he, you promised me you won't do that to me or anybody else. And he only says that you won't do that as long, unless people are talking crap. So, there you are. Pascal, over to you to explain why this has been important, the journey we've taken, and, and why this, this kind of, uh, this four scenarios that we've used as almost like a kind of a compass for our thinking uh, around this report. Over to you, Pascal. First, uh, Mark, and uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good to see you from some distance from Tunisia, which, as you know, is a bit uh, south from Belgium, uh, which is why the light here. Looks nice. Now, as uh, you just said, Amanda, uh, these uh, vision for Europe recommendations are one uh, more step in this uh, sequence of uh, Europe Matter, uh, which Friends of Europe has been following uh, for now uh, a year, uh, leading to new elections. And as a consequence of the new elections, to the new setup. Uh, EU guidelines uh, for ah. that uh, this uh, certain regulation uh, ranks among the various contributions ahead of the CDU uh, summit uh, uh, this week. Our starting point, and Lamanda uh, has just uh, shown where it comes from in terms of what we uh, people are. That's a major issue because the actions are that people voicing what they want. And there is a serious problem. Between on the one side, what Europeans want from the EU, expect from the European integration process, on the one side, and on the other side, what they feel it really delivers. This puts uh, EU politics, uh, which we all know are still in their infancy, in uh, serious danger. And hence uh, the need to fill this gap, which uh, we believe uh, necessitates not just uh, incremental changes, uh, but the European Union to uh, redefine, uh, reorder, uh, rearrange itself both policy-wise uh, and uh, politics-wise. And this is precisely uh, the purpose of these uh, recommendations, uh, which are a sort of new uh, policy uh, toolbox, uh, and they cover <coughs> a very wide uh, range of topics, uh, not for me to enter uh, now into the detail, but in a nutshell, uh, the recommendations point uh, in uh, four different directions. Uh, one, the uh, EU has to get more serious about sustainability. First of all, climate change. First of all, the energy transition. 
Second, uh, the EU has to get uh, bold up about uh, social inclusion. Not that uh, social Europe is something uh, easy uh, to hear. is too distant from uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, problems many of its uh, citizens have. Third, uh, the EU has to be uh, more determined uh, to defend liberal democracy. As we all know, this would not have appeared anywhere on a political agenda five years ago. It is the case now. And for uh, EU has to uh, build uh, some strength, which it lacks today, uh, in a uh, more dangerous uh, world. So these are the four directions uh, where we have uh, developed uh, these recommendations. Final point uh, for this introduction, and I'll then uh, hand back uh, the floor to Dana. Uh, we also believe that uh, these recommendations, set these recommendations, uh, would be a good basis uh, for what we believe will be needed uh, today after the election, uh, which is a platform uh, for a coalition of political forces in the uh, European uh, Parliament, uh, which will likely be a necessity in order uh, to vote in uh, the next uh, president, uh, commission, commission president, the next European Commission, uh, our political diagnosis, uh, which fits uh, with uh, most of what the market uh, says about Poland, is that uh, neither uh, the uh, EPB, nor the SMB, uh, together uh, we have a majority in the next European Parliament. This is a major difference from what has happened uh, since uh, 1979, when the first uh, European Parliament uh, was uh, directly elected. Uh, this will then necessitate a coalition, and this toolbox is also there uh, as a sort of basket in which uh, members of these coalitions, uh, which probably, probably uh, will uh, be uh, the Liberals, uh, and uh, hopefully for some of us, uh, the Greens, uh, will uh, build together. So it's not just something about the future, it's something which is uh, done, has been crafted, uh, has been discussed as a material uh, which can have a very uh, clear use uh, a few weeks from now. Thank you. Thank you very much for setting that context and almost the kind of rationale for, for producing this report. And it's important, especially to launch it on the eve of Council of Ministers meeting in the next few days in Sibiu to uh, discuss the future priorities. And those of you who've been following it have seen that actually Juncker has produced, uh, or the Commission have produced, um, their kind of ongoing, if you like, 
a statement around a stronger, more integrated Europe. The only fly in the ointment is the UK delegation that will be there also, but hopefully that won't divert the conversation too much about the agenda that will be taking place in the next 48 hours. Um, and our intention is that to be able to influence that. And we hope that some of the thinking in this document and the priorities and the recommendations that are set in here um, will be the ones that they have some sort of traction with the, the ministers that are thinking there today. But we won't leave it there. We, as, as Pascal said, we will also uh, aim to be able to engage with uh, the process uh, leading up to the Commission being put into place and subsequently its agenda being developed right through towards the end of the year also. <clears throat> Depending on, obviously, we don't know. History is, you know, a week is a long time in history. We don't know what's going to happen the next 10 days, um, not least because of um, the country whose name shall not be taken, uh, that wants to leave. Um, I now want to kind of invite our speakers who have um, been involved, um, our authors who have been involved in this report. This report, when you get a chance to read it, is structured in, in, in two parts. One is what we have designed and defined as being the building blocks. So there's a set of 10 recommendations here, but we believe that actually in order for those recommendations to fly, and for them to have the right conditions and the right nurturing uh, environment, you need to have some building blocks in place. And these building blocks um, are, uh, are very, very clear in terms of <clears throat> these three things. Power sharing, um, accountability in terms of the governance of the new um, EU mandate, um, and centrally equalities. And we identified authors from around Europe to provide their expertise, their thinking, um, rather than assuming that we had all the answers. And that's been the part of the product of this document, actually, is that we have crowdsourced ideas. We've reached out, and we've reached out across Europe and across the globe to bring thinkers in um, uh, in response to what we've learned from citizens, but also what we believe is the right pathway into the future. So we have these three building blocks uh, that we uh, have set out that actually we think are absolutely critical. And if only some of this thinking gets into the new mandate, then we might have an opportunity or a chance to have greater success potentially. But let's see. We also, just to, let me be clear, that we have uh, a lot of our contributors uh, joining us from different parts of the world. We have Caroline from Norway. We have Jacob, Jacob from Paris, uh, and others joining us from, I think, Berlin um, and Paris again. So a range of people that we'll, I'll invite in, um, uh, in alongside the people that we have in the room here today. I'm going to start off by inviting Alberto Almano, who wrote the power-sharing piece. Alberto, over to you to explain what it is and why it's important. Thank you, Darmendra. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Alberto Lemano. I had the pleasure to contribute to such a report. Um, I'm an academic, but I've been uh, taking an, a, a sabbatical year, so I'm, I'm coming back from, from a year on, on the ground, in which I had the experience, a different experience, to get out of the academic world and to feel what, what is going on. So uh, over the last few months, um, I had the experience of uh, training uh, citizens, meeting citizens, training citizens uh, all across Europe, uh, in the north, in the east, in the west. And what I felt is an unprecedented mobilization, mobilization and demand for participation that is not necessarily captured by our political system, uh, neither at the local nor at the European level. And I see this as, as an opportunity more than as a threat, even though historically the European Union has always been quite skeptical about the expression of popular sovereignty and public input. Uh, the reason why the European Union exists is to somehow protect 
uh, citizens from the tyranny of majorities, for the expression of popular sovereignty which might hijack the political process. But in reality, as you know well, the question on how the European Union can better share and mobilize public input is, is an old question, a question that already in the year 2000 led the European Union to write a very important piece of work, a white paper on governance that has launched a debate, a very important debate, on how to reduce the gap between citizens and the institutions. And since then, the European Union has been producing a panoply of avenues of participation that enable the average citizen to engage with the European institutions, with their own representatives, many more than most of the member states. And in, over the years, my own scholarship proved that the European Union is more in listening mood uh, than any other European country at the moment. Public consultations, uh, petitions to the member of the European Parliament, uh, complaints to the European Ombudsman, but also European citizen initiatives, um, uh, enabling seven citizens to ask the European Union to act. All this looks very well on paper after 20 years, but we know those tools tend to be little known. Uh, they tend not to necessarily lead to the result we want. So how can we reinvent this? In this building block, uh, the idea we uh, try to put forward is that when these avenues of participation are demystified and they are democratized, the European uh, political system can be very responsive. Over the last five years, uh, many civil society organizations, many grassroots movements managed to get a response from the European Parliament and the Commission by including new policy ideas which were not there in the political programs. An example being the whistleblowing directive. Not even one political party included the possibility of protecting whistleblowers in Europe as a method to fight anti-corruption, but this idea coming from the bottom up uh, was integrated and it became law only a few weeks ago. So how can we leverage on the potential of public input to make the European Union even more responsive, but more importantly, even more inclusive? And I think the question here is how we can make sure that the day-to-day decision-making in Europe is going to be much more exposed to public input. So how can we make sure that the members of parliament themselves, but also the commissioners and the different institutional actors in this city are exposed to public input, to what people's uh, preferences are in a particular historical moment? And here we took the liberty to share and put forward some ideas that might, craze, might be crazy today, might sound crazy, but, but they are not mm. really as such. An idea might be to have a question time, uh, enabling the European institution representatives to listen uh, two ideas coming through administrative complaints or coming from European citizen initiative through the petition system on a monthly basis through a structure that would remind us a little bit of what we call trialogues. So the possibility of having the three institutions, representatives gathering and talking to real citizens, citizens who feel that the European Union can actually solve a local problem that exists in Tampere, but it exists also in Lyon, it exists also in Reggio Calabria. Uh, what a wonderful idea to make this happen and to embed this public input in the day-to-day -day, uh, decision-making. There are broader ideas in this paper that you will find out, but the overall philosophy of the power sharing is to make sure that we are going to keep investing in our civic infrastructure, what I call a civic grid. Uh, we have a, a water grid, we have an electricity grid, we keep investing 
on the networks that keep us together and allow our social contract to remain alive, but we don't invest enough in our civic grid. So ideas range from uh, skill sharing uh, activities, having uh, private companies having their own employees, enabling civil society organization to gain a voice in policymaking, all the way to the possibility of supporting uh, grassroots organizations who want to come to Brussels. They don't know exactly which door to knock in Brussels, but we could potentially help them by creating this civic infrastructure or civic grid, which today, unfortunately, is lacking. It's more about connecting the dots than reinventing the wheel, because there are a lot of resources which are already invested. And here you will find some ideas on how to make it possible. A final line, there's a clear case for the European Union to become a leader when it comes to participatory democracy. A democracy which is complementary to representative democracy and is not antagonistic to this. I'm gonna let you think what the current public debate in France could have been if the yellow vest instances and demand would have been somehow anticipated and constructively channeled through institutional mechanism to the political class. Unfortunately, we lack the counterfactual in the sense that we don't really know what could have happened differently, and we know what happened. And it's not necessarily a story that we like to replicate in the rest of Europe. And again, the EU might somehow lead the way in showing mm. this different model of governance in linking and complementing representative democracy, which is there to stay, with participatory forms of democracy, which will be more constructive than the illusory form of direct democracy we see witnessing at the moment in Europe. Alberto, thank you very much. And you, you know, you, I would again um, for all of our speakers, um, I've, I've I've been punishing in terms of saying they have to they have stick to like three to four minutes, uh, but that doesn't capture the detail of what's in the report. So I do urge you to look at the report with the very specifics. But your grand job there in terms of communicating the and the key points. It was interesting that when we conducted the interviews, so I, I conducted interviews with about thirty one private uh, private interviews with heads of you know government government or, or uh, heads of cabinet uh, private sector leaders, and this thing came through quite loud and clear about actually the EU could be a pathfinder for re rejuvenating participatory democracy. And when we did put this out last October, there was a bit of a grumble because people thought, well, what about the European Parliament? That's, you know, uh, uh, a project there. Are you trying to usurp it? And we're not. What we're saying is that some of these processes uh, of, of parliamentary political parties and processes were invented last century. And perhaps we need to rethink about how you involve citizens alongside current representative democracy and what we're suggesting is it could be strengthened underpaid made better if you had some of the ideas that alberto shared with you so thank you for that and we will get into a q a because you may violently disagree which which is absolutely fine but this is about stimulating a debate about the future of europe so i hope you do have a view on some of these things i'm going to now turn to caroline de grutte uh, caroline thank you very much like all the authors we approached the commission was to kind of respond to a set of policy ideas that we put together and the one that caroline responded to was about issues about uh, really framed around focus purpose and governance of the new eu and caroline um you were very forthright are very focused and very clear that actually it's the one thing that can change this. Do you explain? So we had an interesting conversation because when I saw the early draft, I said, nope, this is the one thing that actually will really tackle a diehard issue within the EU. Carolyn, over to you. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Um, from far up north this time, we had even a little snow this morning. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about how we can improve... Um, European governance, and I have, indeed, I have a suggestion for you. 
Because some people are saying, ah, oh, we have to set up new institutions, uh, governance is not okay, or we have to change the treaty, of course, it's becoming very popular now, just ahead of the elections. But we all know, of course, that this is not going to happen. Uh, so my proposal is, uh, I think, more doable, is that all EU member states appoint a deputy prime minister in charge of Europe, just for Europe, nothing else. Um, if you look at the EU, it is a federal system, in a way, uh, just like Germany is a federal system, just like the US is a federal system. Yeah? It has an, exec an executive body, it has a parliament, a sort of a senate, which is the council, a judiciary, and also controlling bodies. So everything is there, and most of it actually, I think, functions rather well. Um, they more or less all do what they are supposed to do, and even the parliament is getting more and more power. I think the problem is that only one of them is too dominant, and this is the council, which in this federal system is the, the senator. Uh, if you step back and you look at our four levels of governance today that we have, local, regional, uh, national, and European, there's only one level that is totally dominated by decision makers from the level below, and that is the European level. Now, try to imagine, do prime ministers of German Länder decide on German laws? No, they don't. Do US state governors decide on the US budget? No, they don't. But in Europe, this is precisely what's, what is happening. The member states who sit in the council, they take all the major decisions in Europe. And they all have their, their national interests in mind and not the European interest, because that's not what they, they, uh, they're there for. So, for example, they cannot agree on a common European asylum uh, and immigration policy. And as a consequence, there isn't one, there isn't really a policy, but then they go, they go on blaming Europe for not functioning well. So something has to give here. Um, and I think, um, ideally, we should say, let's take the veto out. Huh? Let's make sure that there's less blockage. And force ministers, all these national ministers, to, uh, to work together huh? and to, to, to take decisions with qualified majority. But since they are the very people who have to decide whether to do this or not, huh, in that same council, it's not going to happen, and we all know that, at least, at least uh, not now. So that's why I've been looking at a different solution. National ministers in the council, they are all running part of their country, and they all have a ministry to run, so they're really good with that. And Europe, for them, is not a priority. They are just paid to serve the country and not to serve Europe. So this is why I propose that all member states appoint, so all 28 or 27, we don't know, they appoint one deputy prime minister, somebody with clout and visibility, who does only Europe. The whole day long, only Europe. This should be somebody also without a national portfolio. And this person, 
will constantly be in touch and work together with uh, the other deputy prime ministers in other countries who only do in Europe. This will happen full time, and their focus will be, because you know it's what they should do and there's nothing else for them to do, is to make sure that Europe delivers a little bit better. So this person, this deputy prime minister, will have, by definition, a, a more broad uh, perspective than the other national ministers. He will guide or she and coordinate and maybe even smash some hands together when it's necessary. I think that Europe cannot be run by people who only have the narrow interests of a little part of Europe in mind. I think Europe deserves decision makers with a broader European focus who care about the common interest of 550 million people and not just 7 million people or 50 million people. Um, we will, I think, not be able to force member states at the moment to be less dominant uh, in the EU. So I propose that we are a little bit smart and a little bit inventive and we put our cards just on another way to make the council a little less uh, national and a little more European. Excellent. Thank you very much, Caroline. As we said, part of these um, recommendations and pieces at the, the top end of the report, whilst the ideas are deliberately bold and, uh, and some are pragmatic, they're also intended to make us think long and hard about the state we find ourselves in. And rather than accept the state as is, I think this and Alberto's pieces are about really thinking long and hard about the state that could be and thinking of the art of the possible. And, you know, it's, it's to there to stimulate debate. And I think that in both these uh, uh, pieces, you'll see, it is really trying long and hard to actually get into the groove and almost place worms in the system to make change happen. And I think that, as you can see from both of these, these are interesting. Uh, they're not necessarily kite-flying, but they're ambitious. Uh, but they do make us long, think long and hard about, actually, how do we fix what feels like a bit of a broken system uh, in the EU as it is currently. Now, the final uh, piece, uh, piece here is about delivering equality. Sadly, Kirsten van der Hoel, a member of parliament in the Netherlands, can't be with us. So I'm going to try and sort of summate what the thinking is there. But I'd ask you to turn to page 15 of the report, where she sets out uh, her abiding vision and approach to equalities. And again, a very interesting conversation because, you know, I wanted to go down the field of actually let's look at all the different equality issues and think about performance management. Let's think about how do we uh, set targets for director generals to actually deliver on equality, something which I've been more used to in the UK, where I've worked in, you know, in equalities bodies. Uh, but she went down this route and she set, set out here. And I think on the page, uh, she very eloquently sets out what really needs to happen. And she uses these kind of... Um, five dimensions, make it stick, make it safe, make it count, make it visible, make it a priority. And in each of these, what she's saying is, um, and I think this quote's quite interesting, she goes, so what are we waiting for? She says, and I'm not a football person, but I think those of you who do get it will understand this, but it's funny still. Any football fan will tell you, you can't win a match with 11 left-footed strikers. And yet, that's exactly who we have on the pitch today. It's time to get women off the bench and into the game, or else we're destined to lose 
big time. Um, and I think that's an important sentiment. Um, we know from modern neuroscience and behavioral science that actually um, having more women in, in places of decision-making lead, can lead to better results, better decision-making, and better risk management. We also know that actually if you do have more of a mix and a diverse mix, you're likely to think about risk differently, you're likely to be consensus-building, and you're likely to have a use of more of um, your emotional intelligence to make decisions. And so in this piece, she's saying actually she's using the word quota very clearly set out quotas to um, you know, bridge the, uh, the gender gap uh, and divide, but very clearly set targets and make it safe for women to uh, work in different, uh, different places without fear of harassment and fear, uh, and fear of, uh, of being um, seen as different uh, simply because of their gender. Um, and she's very clear that this, if we get it right, it's almost like the thin, thin end of the wedge type argument that if we get it right for women, we can get it right for other minorities, or uh, minorities, not other minorities, but, you know, minorities in terms of equalities, other quality groups. Yes, I credited myself in time. Um, so, but th that's what her argument is, that actually use this as a proxy for change across structures. And, you know, when we think about, we've had a number of conversations around gender equality, uh, Friends of Europe, with the current commissioner, Vera Jourova, who um, has led this piece quite significantly and it goes back to what she sort of in one of the debates I had, we did it in conversation where I interviewed her and you know my issue was that you know there's an economic argument to to, to you know uh, uh, bridge the gender divide and bridge the gap because actually you're going to create more economic growth, then also you're going to um, ensure you're not wasting talent uh, across the system and a whole range of others. And she pointed to the fact that actually proposals dated back to the past three years ago around um, um, pay, pay issues, publishing uh, you know, differences in, in wages and, and a whole range of other things for companies and others have sat and or been rejected by the council. So it's the council that has been blocking a lot of the developments that the, you know, a lot of the women um, and a lot of groups and a lot of the middle tier of the commission would like to see happen. Yet what it happens is it gets blocked at the council. And that's why I think the point that made by um, uh, Carolyn is, is quite important in terms of actually how do we shift this in a direction that is meaningful uh, in the future. I suppose the bigger, big, bigger issue here is that Europe has, th has, has, has thrived on its diversity, we know that. And we know that in the context of the changes that have happened in the past three years, not least uh, those who have come as economic migrants or as asylum seekers and refugees with a right to, to stay, the shape and, change, the shape and, the, and the context of uh, the EU will change increasingly over the next 10 years. And integration is going to become the major policy issue for most EU member states. And actually, what we're saying is the EU has an opportunity again to lead the way and think boldly about representation and engagement and make better policy, because if it doesn't, it'll be caught on the back foot dealing with problems yet again in terms of creating ghettos in cities, not focusing on inter integration, and we'll have more surges, if you like, by politicians uh, making the issue in, in, a toxic um, and playing to people's worst fears. However, so that's the equalities piece. Again, you know, I recommend you read it in, in more detail. What I'd like to do now is um, hand the floor over to you and uh, give you the opportunity to ask questions. Um, so... What are your reactions to what you've heard so far from um, both the uh, contributors and what you think about the ideas? 
Don't be shy. Those of you who know me, you know I'll come and pick on you anyway. So uh, it'll be great if... I mean, what do you think about the idea of a, uh, a Deputy Prime Minister? Is it pie in the sky? Ah, great, excellent. Can you say who you are? Yeah, sure. Uh, is it on? Yeah. Is it on? Okay. My name is Tina Demius. I'm a candidate for European Parliament, first time candidate this year. Um, I'm German, so of course I like the idea of this whole, you know, uh, federal Europe. And, and I particularly like the idea of a European Prime Minister. Now, Carolyn said, I think, um, that she thought it was illusionary to think that the um, treaties would be reopened. So I'm wondering, if that idea were supposed to be implemented, how would that work? Okay. Well, before I bring Carolyn, you may want to come back, uh, back to that. Any other comments on that particular, or anything else that you've heard? Sir. My name is <coughs> Joost van Yersel uh, from The Hague, Netherlands. Um, institutional questions are the most sensitive in the Union. That's true. Um, it's an attractive idea, but when it comes to realization, I see quite a number of uh, blocks on the road. I give one example. When you have a prime minister of, uh, in a coalition uh, government of uh, party one, and his deputy prime minister is party two, um, you can get, um, okay, differences of view uh, within the coalition when positions have to be taken. This is also true when you have different um, national minister, ministries, ministers for um, uh, for uh, concrete uh, concrete uh, dossiers. Uh, economic affairs is different from uh, trade. Uh, uh, internal market is maybe different from transport and transport. No, indeed, people know that. People know that. But in terms but, of what, but this this one, this so-called deputy prime minister has to cover everything and has to be accepted okay. in the national system mm -hmm. as an overhaul responsibility. Okay. In fact, it is an upgrading of the, uh, uh, of the Corripea to a political level. Okay, all right. Let's, and, let's and see. Can you realize it? It's just a question. But do you think it's a good idea? Well, all ideas are good when, they get, when, they, when, when we can discuss them, but uh, I, I see blocks on the road. That's the only thing. Indeed, but isn't the, the, the point of ideas is that we were able to use them to change the world that we want to have yeah, as okay. opposed to stick with the one that we have? That, that, that that's we live. true. Excellent. Great. Any other responses, please? Again, say who you are. Um, my name is Anna Wandenski. I work for online magazine, which is called Europe Diplomatic. Mm -hmm. I would like to challenge you because uh, right from the start you said that there is uh, tremendous support for Europe. And meantime, I read that Ipsos France published their research that Marine Le Pen is leading with 22% of potential voters. Socialists are like Pascal Lamy. They have only 5,5%. So... Uh, how can you explain this, um, I would say, paradox that from one side you say 
that citizens want more Europe, but from the other side, they are potentially will uh, vote for um, Eurosceptic uh, political force. No, indeed. No, thank you very much. Anyone else? Ah, gentleman here. Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name is Sebastiano, and I'm with the Young European Federalists. Uh, so first, I mean, there's a lot of things has been said, uh, but I wanted to react a bit more specifically on what Alberto Alemano has said, which I have been following in the last few years because the work you do with the good lobby is really great. I mean, it's you do that on a much bigger scale than what we already do internally with our sections, building up capacity for citizens to lobby for societal issues and not for private economic interests, which is also fine, but I mean, that part is missing, the societal interest. Um, my, my, I'm, I'm taking issue with something you said. Um, you praised a lot of what the EU does to engage citizens. Uh, the ombudsman, petitions and administrative complaints and so on, which is all good. But at the same time, it's very much like a customer service. And, and it's the big problem with the EU that it really looks like a big single market with a massive customer service. What it does is citizens dialogue that are a massive PR effort with no practical consequences. The future of Europe debate hasn't really achieved anything. And we've seen the draft CB declaration and they could have written this two years ago. Uh, and what is missing is that the EU does have the potential to improve participatory democracy. Like, absolutely, we have the machine to do it. We even have the examples because the Council of Europe, for instance, has a co-management system involving youth in decisions that is uh, insanely innovative and advanced and at the same time under threat because, as you may know, budget cuts are looming. So uh, if anyone wants more information on that, I'm happy to provide more details. Uh, but what is missing is, is really completing representative democracy first. It's, it's not just a tool from the previous century. What we have, and, and Ms. de Gruyter was going in that direction, is a mixture of different systems of decision-making that are not a federal system, that are not clear in who is taking the decisions and why, and we first need to fix that. We need a proper parliament with proper representation of sub-European entities, the states, and real mandate for the European Parliament to initiate legislation and to be the real voice and the real decision-making body for citizens. This is what I see missing at the European level. Okay, thank you very much. No, it's okay, well, all right, I'm going to first, Albert, do you want to take that very quickly? As run, time is running on, and I'll bring those of you who want to come in in a moment, but I've got, a, I've got the other main pillars to go take in as well, but then we'll get into a debate. Comment um, and for your your flattering words, uh, I think we, we we both agree that Europe needs politics more than ever. Uh, we're going to be voting for European elections in a few weeks. Uh, those elections are going to take place along national borders. That we're going to have national parties, uh, which are going to be running national programs, national candidates, and then the sum of those results will suddenly become European or Europeanized. This is no longer doing justice to the Europeanization that occurs in society and in the economy. So there is a growing demand for experimenting something new. But as you might have noticed, this Europeanization is not finding expression in the political process. Um, we had a very interesting debate in Brussels a year ago for the change of the rules of the game, meaning allowing for transnational lists transnational parties. This is an, old, an old, is an old idea, a federalist idea that you can revendicate. It has been, been in the books for a long time, but the political system show not to be ready in the absence of a European, truly European political party system to embrace even a very shy, timid, experimental 
thing that would have entailed having 40 seats um, run. You know, story is very funny, history is very funny, because it turned out that because of Brexit, even if on February 7th the Parliament had accepted these 40 seats to be allocated in such a way because of the extension uh, of Article 50, we would not allocate those 40 seats because they are still belonging to the UK. So what an incredible paradox that I think we need to highlight. But to conclude, um, I think we both agree, we need to build Europe from the bottom up through participatory democracy, but also from the top down, meant through traditional, conventional political space. And I'm a big fan of contributing to this in my little contribution of promoting the Europeanization of the political space. We do, but we need to do both. Europe is the only jurisdiction in the world that draws its legitimacy from both representative democracy and participatory democracy. You cannot find any other country in the world whose action is legitimated by both the institutions and the representatives and the participation of citizens. So we need both, and we can be the first mover in reinventing democracy at the transnational level by leveraging on both. So we are on, okay. on the same mission here. And All many right. more people are ready to join, I'm sure. Thank you, thank you for that. Carolyn, do you want to respond to what was said around your proposal? question how would it work huh, as mm -hmm. a deputy prime minister and there's also a question of course uh, how can this be accepted by, 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 by national systems or owned even by national systems if you look at the problem you know the member states are responsible largely responsible nowadays for all the decisions taken in EU huh? but they do not take real responsibility, in my view, most of the time, because they let things linger or rot sometimes, or they just do the minimal thing, as we've seen during all the, all the crisis in recent years, to keep going and not to hold, let the whole thing uh, fall to pieces. But then, if things are not really uh, working as they should, because they're doing the minimal, they blame Europe for not really delivering. And I find this quite a perverse game, which has which has to stop it. It's very difficult to stop it. So how how would it work in a coalition government or in a, in a government with, 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 with just one or two parties? I don't know. That's uh, reality nowadays, anyway. Um, somebody somebody uh, would do this thing full time, and so he he will or she will be looking for uh, for issues all the time. And so if there's something lingering and all the other colleagues or most other colleagues are pestering him or her, it's like, can you please make a move now and this is unsustainable and so on. Okay. At least the subject is constantly on the agenda. And if this vice, dep uh, the deputy prime minister, is also representing the country, for instance, in the General Affairs Council, which is the last instance before the, the heads of state and government uh, come in, this can have a significant um, okay. influence, I think, on discussions within the government and on positions taken. Remember now, many countries don't have a, uh, anybody responsible for Europe. Uh, and some, uh, in some countries, it's the, it's the foreign minister, as if Europe is, is, is something foreign. Or a deputy minister who is not okay. So I think we, are, we, we really need something, and it's also in the national um, interest if sure. the government owns 
now uh, it's an undutch remedy, and uh, the Dutch Prime Minister is not known for being uh, very warm-hearted towards Europe, or, or till recently, till actually the Dutch okay. had, the, uh, had the EU presidency last time, and uh, Merkel, uh, the German Chancellor, was on the verge of doing a, the, the refugee deal with Turkey. And she asked Rutte to uh, get some other member states on the line. So he rolled up his sleeve and went to work. And apparently, many people around him, and he has alluded to himself too, that it was really the first time that he had to fight for, for some European issue. And as a result, he owned that. And he okay. Thank you. No, indeed. Thank you very much. I'm so conscious of time and, you know, I need to let you go very soon and we haven't even got to the kind of the, the three basic uh, areas that we want to focus on in terms of policy recommendations. I'm not ducking your question at all around the challenge. I very much welcome the challenge. We were surprised, as, as you are, when, you're, when you point to the fact that actually in our poll we found that positive reaction, um, which we, you know, it was independently done. And if you look at, um, there's a quirk between domestic and Europe-wide, as we know that in terms of polling. And none of us can be kind of gurus in that respect, but all I can go by is that everyone's been startled by how much pro-European approaches seem to be in the air when recent Eurobarometer and other polls have been conducted Europe-wide about Europeans wanting more Europe and a better Europe. Uh, but that does not, I mean, how do you explain, you know, uh, the Brexit, uh, for example, poll, uh, result uh, and other results you're referring to? Because there's always a meshing between what people feel on, in the ground domestically and what their issues are about their national politicians versus what Europe says and does. I'm going to move on to the, the main pieces. So the second part of the report is the three areas that we felt are the foundations of the policy agenda for the new EU mandate. Prosperity, sustainability and security. We have Jakob Hessler who's going to set out um, the ideas. And if again, I recommend you to look at the report. Um, he's definitely been bold and audacious in his thinking around the recommendations for, for prosperity. Jacob, over to you. German has been living in Paris for 12 years, and I'm an entrepreneur with a heart strongly beating for Europe. Um, so I will I'll try to summarize basically my suggestions, ideas, food for thought in three main ideas. Number one is the question of what is the prosperity we are talking about? What is it really about? Because on the one hand, Europe when you compare it in GDP indicators, etc., etc., has been lagging behind some of the more dynamic uh, economies in the world, and also compared to our American cousins, we are not as dynamic. So one could say our prosperity is under threat, it's been going down, etc., and there is some truth to it. However, if you look at prosperity in a broader way, meaning including the quality of life, including all the indicators attached to that, then you'll find Europe is not doing so bad. And the problem is, how do you conceive of a notion of prosperity for the future that both encompasses 
our ability to compete in global markets as an economy, sort of the creation of conventional prosperity, while also living in the society we want to live in, which is what I call the European way of life. And I think the answer is, is that these two are actually mutually reinforcing and not exclusive. So it is not that we need more growth to pay for a social system. I think we need to do on the one hand, and that is my second point, we need to do on the one hand, we need to create more of what I say of our future around innovation, technology, and empowering the entrepreneurs across Europe to seize the occasion or the necessity, the absolute necessity to build solutions for to respond to climate change. And at the same time, we need to transform our European way of life, not by just continuing years of stripping it down, but by thinking comprehensively about what is an inclusive prosperity, what could it mean, and how we can achieve it, and transforming the state. So I think it's create the future and it's transform the system. That's the second part. And the third one, my third idea, is about how. And the question of how is it has to be citizen-driven, and that I would in that sense include companies, entrepreneurs, but also NGOs experimenting with new forms of financing, be it to use more inclusive financing to, to invest in making houses of less fortunate people ready for climate change. The economic gains of, for example, it's a very simple example, the economic gains of isolating your house are obvious. The CO2 economy is obvious, yet there's a wide part of the population that does not have the funds to actually make this investment, even if this investment is cash positive. So every good investor would say, yes, well, we need to address this with new and more creative forms, and they exist, and they are being experimented with. And I think in doing that, things like this, we can combine, on the one hand, respond to the biggest challenge we face, which is climate change, reignite growth around innovation, not around just technology, but also the social innovation we need to make it happen, and create the kind of Europe that allows us to continue to lead a life that, while it's not perfect and while, of course, it has deteriorated and inequality has risen, but that still, I would say most people, even those, or maybe particularly those who would vote for Marine Le Pen and others, would actually want to protect. And I think in that way we can answer the question of prosperity and preserving that and developing and evolving that European way of life for the 21st century. Thank Great, thank you very much, um, Jacob. And obviously, again, um, when you read the, the detail, there's a lot in there, a lot in there, which is the specifics. It's not just statements. There's some very clear, very specific recommendations of what could happen in the area of prosperity. I'm going to ask now, Martin, I'm right behind you, uh, to uh, explain your thinking and your recommendations around sustainability. Over to you. 
Thank you, and uh, good evening, everybody. I will um, endeavor to make this extremely concise because I hope you will all, um, if not already had a chance to glance through the report, you'll all be able to pour over it and look at all of the chapters, including uh, the one that I've drafted, which is based very much on some of the work that has been done through the process that Namendra spoke about. So it draws a lot on the opinion polling and the, the bottom-up input that was mentioned. Um, two words about context and then three uh, points about the recommendations I'll, I'll highlight very quickly. Um, Pascal mentioned that one of the central conclusions of this uh, work was that the EU should get much more serious about sustainability and in particular climate change. Um, and the two points of context I would say are about the urgency of that and the obvious importance of it that can surely not escape anybody in this room uh, and I hope nobody outside, because of the work that's been done by the United Nations, the IPCC, 1.5 degree report last year, and even only yesterday, the report on biodiversity that was issued, uh, it could not be more stark, uh, and it could not be clearer that this is an issue which we have very little time to take more seriously. Um, so the urgency is clear. The importance is equally clear, I think, because it does involve, if we are to address it, a transformation of the way we run our economy and indeed the way that our society functions and the points that uh, have just been mentioned indeed. So the importance and urgency, I think, are abundantly clear and they are ones that the EU itself, as much as any other level of government within Europe and beyond, is particularly well equipped to tackle. Um, we can see that action on this is more likely than not now to be popular. We can see the Youth for Climate movement taking place. We have demonstrations in the streets here in Brussels on a regular basis now. Uh, we have popular um, impetus, if you want, behind civil disobedience, which is uh, very clear and growing. Um, and politicians can see this. They can sense the importance of that. And that is something that in particular, at a European level, could be a unifying uh, process. All political parties, not just the Greens, although obviously I'm sure the Greens uh, have led the way on this, are starting to realize that this is a political imperative for them all and can unite more than it can divide at European level as much as any other. So what does that mean if we assume it is important and there is time running out to address it uh, with the seriousness that Pascal mentioned and is a unifying um, force potentially? Um, the recommendations that uh, are made in the, in the paper, I'll just resume in, in three. The first, and this has been spurred by the Commission's publication last year, is to make sure that we have very early in the new mandate of the Commission, and indeed uh, endorsed even in this um, uh, set of institutional discussions, a very clear objective by, for mid-century climate neutrality for the European Union to be our objective, our mission, essentially, for the European Union. And that is essentially putting sustainability first. We have to make sure that the social uh, and economic uh, imperatives uh, associated with that are achieved. But it will only be by putting that as a clear central priority and importantly organizing around it. We still do not have the institutional focus, whether it's in the European Commission or other institutions, that give uh, voice to that priority. So there are organizational uh, recommendations which uh, are made in the paper and which can be taken at the European Commission or national or other levels um, uh, to ensure that that gets the priority it needs. The second innovation, uh, and again this is in discussion at the moment, uh, would be to make sure that the economic transformation that is necessary and uh, will follow that 
is one that results in very clear economic and social benefits for Europe. And that means an industrial strategy, a modern 21st century industrial strategy that is European-wide rather than the aggregation of a series of national industrial strategies mm -hmm. that looks at the industries of the future. And you can see in uh, recent times the example of the batteries industry or the batteries uh, question becoming a central focus for how Europe should, should look at this issue. But we could replicate that across a number of other value chains, a number of, uh, of other industries, and ensure, therefore, that we organize our regional policy, our trade policy, our competition policy, as well as our energy and environment and industry policies, all towards those goals. Um, and a third point I would highlight would be the possibility to use our innovation uh, and research and innovation uh, policies at a much more decentralized and local level than primarily to deal with pan-European uh, issues at a centralized, uh, in a centralized way. Um, there was a, a report recently that the um, high-level panel on long-term decarbonization pathways uh, produced, uh, amongst which uh, its recommendations were innovation super labs being set up at a series of regional local levels that would bring citizens, uh, regional um, policymakers, local businesses all together to try to uh, experiment and scale up the sort of solutions that would lead to uh, the types of solutions that would be popular but also very effective. That is the type of innovation that could be funded by and spurred by the European Union but would be much more locally and decentralized uh, in, its, in its impact and felt as a consequence by many more of the Europeans uh, and European citizens. Um, I hope that that's within three or four minutes but... Uh, it's absolutely fine. That's Thank you very much. I'm going to canter on. I'm going to canter on, but not, not to, you know, because I want to, want to get into the debate if we can, uh, because of the limited time we have. Jamie, last but not least, security. Uh, well, probably least but not last, uh, as it's going to turn out. No, I mean, to, as a Brit uh, talking about the future of the European Union, I feel as if uh, I'm somewhat of an imposter uh, uh, here, here this evening. Obviously, Friends of Europe couldn't think of anybody better. Um, and I was hoping that another Brit would give me a bit of strategic cover, but then I discovered that he's Belgian, so I'm uh, truly alone uh, this evening. But uh, no, I mean, security would probably not have featured in this type of report a couple of years ago, uh, because uh, you are dealing here with citizens, and traditionally citizens have not been much involved in security, mm -hmm. defence, debates, let alone decisions. In France, they talk about le domaine régalien, it's been a preserve of elites, of, of leaders, of military forces, and the public in general have been content to uh, trust their military leaders and their political leaders, uh, at least to give them the benefit of the doubt for a while when it comes to launching military operations. But I think security now does have its place in this report, which is the reason why I did contribute, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is because the l'Europe qui protège uh, as much as l'Europe qui vous rend prospère, uh, has, I think, become one of the new legitimizing uh, bases for the EU in, in, in the future. And a way, uh, at a time when making the EU make everybody richer is going to be very difficult, uh, is a way of uh, moving forward uh, for the new leadership. In other words, it's a doable uh, domain, whereas many of the others perhaps are not so easily uh, doable. Uh, secondly, because uh, for many uh, decades, uh, for European security was about what we went to do to the rest of the world. Uh, but now it's what the rest of the world is increasingly doing to Europeans. Mm. Uh, a neighbourhood which was remarkably stable and secure, 
uh, if not always very democratic, around us has become a very insecure, uh, unstable uh, one. Uh, and even uh, if Europeans still trust uh, the United States for a while yet to take care of big issues, or big uh, threats, like uh, competition from Russia, uh, they know very well that the Americans are not going to sort out issues in the Balkans or in North Africa or, or elsewhere. And there's going to be an increasing requirement for the use of military uh, forces in European combinations uh, simultaneously around the neighbourhood. In other words, for much of our time, we had the luxury of dealing with one problem in one place at one time, but now we have to deal with multiple strategic fronts and multiple simultaneous missions. Uh, and I think the third reason why Europeans, the public, are more invested now in these issues is because people increasingly recognise the nexus between domestic insecurity, the homeland front, cyber attacks, fake news, interference campaigns, issues of, of resilience, terrorism, with what's going on outside in the world. And, and in other words, to get one right is going to make it easier to solve the issue elsewhere. So in, in my section, I, I'm not claiming any great originality in terms of ideas, because to some degree, we've had this debate, perhaps in security defence, for many, many years, more than, for example, climate change, which we've started to tackle only recently. But sometimes you do things, not just because they are overdue, but you do things because there is a window of opportunity. The time is right. Uh, and to implement even existing ideas. And sometimes implementing existing ideas is just, for me, uh, as much a, a worthwhile political endeavour as coming up with new ideas as well. So uh, in a nutshell, in, in, in my particular section, I've said that European defence is win-win. If the United States stays uh, committed to NATO, then it's a good way of manifesting to Trump and his successors a greater European willingness to share the burden, which can only be done viably through more European defence integration if the United States were one day to abandon NATO or to dramatically reduce its influence. It's a win-win in the sense that Europe would have used the window between now and then to prepare for a time when it could adequately defend itself uh, without relying upon an external power. And I've said that although it's wonderful that for the last 70 years the United States has been willing uh, to bankroll the defence of Europe, to underwrite it, much longer than the Americans would have believed conceivable when NATO was first invented. It's not wise for any major power bloc such as Europe to indefinitely rely upon a foreign power to provide its security. Are you complimenting Trump? So let's have, <laughs> yes, Trumpism will survive Trump. So, so let's then have this period of, of, of transition. So what I've said in terms of recommendations, are number one, it would be silly to, for Europeans to be spending all of this extra money on defence, the 2%, the money they're spending at the moment, the nearly 50 billion extra dollars that they've spent since 2016, for only NATO to have the benefit. This extra money is an opportunity also to define a specifically European set of forces for European missions. Number two, I've said that Franco-German leadership, which is never going to be perfect, but the opposite is even worse, uh, has to be complemented by a core group of willing partners mm -hmm. that are willing to push this forward. Number three, I've said that the Europeans should start thinking not only of European defence as to do non-collective defence things, like in Africa or elsewhere, but to start thinking about how the EU can progressively take over collective defence roles, the high-end stuff, uh, and that is a way to build confidence 
among the skeptical Central and Eastern European EU members who think that the only solution is an American solution. The EU has to show that it's a credible actor in taking on these okay. hard uh, tasks. That can't be overdone overnight, but mm. we have to start. The next one is that I've argued that there should be a commissioner in the new European Commission with specific responsibility for European defence to deal with the hardcore technological issues. How do you modernise European defence in an age where you, United States, Russia, Japan are investing in biotechnology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the whole suite of new defence technologies. Europe has the knowledge, but how do we implement them in our armed forces? And therefore, a link in the Commission, which is now getting into this R&D game, has to be established between the High Representative, who deals with the foreign policy side, and the European uh, Defence uh, uh, Agency. And I've also suggested, finally, that we need a narrative. What is the problem in the past is that we keep changing the reason why we're doing this. Uh, one day uh, it's about strategic autonomy, the next day it's about a European army. Uh, and the fact that we can't agree on a consistent narrative means that this idea is rapidly shot down internally mm. among those who feel that you can have security like the SPD in Germany, if I may, ah, with you, soft power. I think you need to bring your mic up to you. And on the other hand, it's shot down internationally in the United States where it's seen as European waffle, where there is no real intention to follow through. So we need to deal, have a convincing narrative both externally and internally which explains why the military factor is necessary for Europe, even if the EU does not aspire to be a uniquely type of military power in the world, uh, such as China, the United States, mm. uh, Russia, or, or, or others. So in other words, uh, uh, the must, I believe, was resolved a long time ago, mm. but must without can is totally useless, like can without must. Uh, and so I think that this should be on the agenda because it's important, but because uh, we can do it. We can do it. Excellent. That sounds like a, a strap line for the New Europe campaign. We can do it. Mm. Um, thank you very much for that. I'm going to bring three women in very, very quickly. 60 seconds. We reviewed all of the recommendations and the, and the authors that you've listened to have been uh, critically appraised by uh, peer reviewers that, we've, that we chose from across uh, Europe and the world. And we have two on this panel here. Francesca, welcome. And Nicole, who peer reviewed Dear Jamie's uh, uh, paper, and you know it was it was a good experience, no? Absolutely. <laughs> I hope so. Um, Sixty. Fulfilled my democratic deficit. Indeed, indeed. Can I ask both of you sixty seconds? Thank you, but firstly, thank you both for at short notice coming together and actually making the time to look at Jamie's piece and providing constructive feedback. So, Francesca, I'll start with you first, and then, Nicole, I'll go to you. But 60 seconds, and then I'm going to ask a, a member of the Greens to come and say what she thinks about the whole thing. Thank Francesca. You, first of all, congratulations on the publication of the report. It has been an absolute pleasure to work with Jamie and the team, you, and uh, thank you for including me. Uh, I cannot agree more with the recommendation made in the paper. I guess my two points uh, would be the importance of really improving real coordination and accountability for all the security initiatives that we keep discussing so that we can pull together capabilities and resources and be very careful not to duplicate efforts. There's a lot going on at the EU level, NATO level, so we don't want to potentially waste the precious resources, whether it's human resources and financial resources. Okay. And the other really important point is to have a clear, consistent, convincing narrative. I think it's important to communicate what's really at stake 
if you want citizens in Europe to really be involved, to be really be part of that decision making process, all of this starts with explaining what's okay. really at stake. And everybody has a role to play, uh, from government leaders to citizens, and only then they will be able to be better informed citizens, understand what's at risk and what's the added value of having more security um, in Europe and having a led you led the security. Okay. Um, ultimately, I guess the goal that the report uh, wants to accomplish is ensuring Europe's future safety, security, and economic well-being. And again, communicating clearly what's at stake and what the other value is, um, it's key in all of these recommendations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much again. Nicole, 60 seconds from you, your reaction um, to, you know, the what you've heard so far, but mostly importantly on the security stuff, um, your, your reaction to what was pulled together eventually. Finally. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it was a real pleasure to, to comment on the scenario by Jamie, which I thought was, was extremely well crafted. Um, three quick points. Um, Jamie, you said um, that you mentioned some older ideas and that now maybe the time is right to implement them. But what I would like to just um, throw into the debate are two, three old tensions that your proposals um, touch upon. And the first one is the tension between the core and the union. You say you need a core. You also mentioned maybe using the European Intervention Initiative as this core. Um, but the question here is still how do you bring in those that are not part of the European Intervention Initiative? There's <coughs> some new tensions. Uh, second tension um, is um, the long-standing tension between supranational and the governmental, so between the Commission and the Member States. Um, you mentioned that there should be commissioner for security for defense. Um, could there not still be some pushback from the member states that want to keep control um, on of the strategic decisions uh, via, for instance, the European Defense Fund? Uh, and the third issue, uh, very briefly, is um, EU versus NATO. You mentioned this idea, which I find really interesting, to use the EU battle groups um, in defense of the eastern border, uh, and perhaps that this could convince the more Atlanticist eastern member states, um, but I'm wondering here again whether, um, as you said, Francesca, there is not um, a narrative of duplication and maybe the eastern European member states okay. are not so um, open to this proposal. Um, so uh, my question okay. to you, back to you, is really how, how right is the time really to overcome these tensions? Okay. Not sure we'll get time to go there, but thank you very much again, though, Nicole. Thank you. Um, it's much appreciated. Evelyn, over to you. You're a member of the European Greens. Um, what's, what's your take on what you've heard so far? Yeah, yes. You are not surprised if I, uh, I react maybe on the question on climate change, and I'm maybe more happy today than yesterday because what I see that it's your questionnaire showed that the people point as a priority tackling climate uh, and also that Mr. Lamy said that one of the biggest priority is the energy transition. Uh, so I think that's of course, and also the protest of the young people here in Brussels. You know, I was a regional minister of climate and energy, and I can say that there is a big change in, uh, in, the, in the population uh, concerning this, uh, this, uh, this question. So I think that one of the biggest action is uh, to, to act and not only report on the climate change and so phasing out 
of uh, of coal of fossil fuels also uh, the plan for the sustainable renovation and new construction we did it in brussels we begin it with the exemplary buildings and i like also what uh, mr esler said it's uh, also, uh, a global question, uh, we have to transform the system and to have another way of life, of course. Everything is, uh, is, uh, is, is in this. And also, we see that all this question of, uh, of sustainability is also a big opportunity today. And uh, we did it also because it's the the time, to, the, the the moment also to create a new pact, a new alliance between environment and employment, on uh, sustainable construction, on the question of water, of waste, of uh, sustainable food, and to show that we can create. And we made a plan here in, in, in Brussels to create with the economic uh, level also, with all the people, also the schools around the table, to create these jobs and to show that it, we have really an opportunity. It's a question also today of the mobility in Europe. And I think it's really a big, big, big challenge to change the mobility, to invest in the train also, to be also more accessible, more affordable, uh, and... Uh, but isn't that just a question of politics and vested interest? It's, sorry? A matter of politics and vested interest. I.e. the fact that we don't get mobility right. That, that the issue is about politics and vested interest, yeah. i.e. why we're not moving faster on sorting out mobility. No, I don't understand. Sorry. Okay, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> but I want to, I yeah. want to point a second point. A second point. I'm, uh, it's also because you said how to involve the citizens in the European questions. Yeah. And I think that we have to build. You know, I'm also local councillor, and I was, I'm a regional MP. We have to find a new relationship between Europe and between the regions and the cities. Uh, it's a bottom-up approach, of course, but we have to put, to build more link between those two levels. And okay. I see it in in Brussels when you have structural funds. And I had this all this program with urban planning. I saw that it was very difficult to have some link to have dialogue with Europe about all this program, this structural program. So we receive budget, of course, Indeed, but sure. it's only budget. We don't have a cooperation, a real cooperation with with Europe. That's why read our report. Yeah. One of the top recommendations is there is forming a brand new localism. We've heard it across the piece that may, actually we're missing the opportunity to connect cities, mayors, and regions yes. in a forging a new localism. And actually creating a very not necessarily new structures, but new dialogues and channels of engagement, yes, which democratizes the process much more. Don't Great. use the cities Indeed. and the localities. They are the future the of economic growth uh, in Europe. Thank you very much, Evelyn. Pascal. I'm going to come back to you, if I may. Um, I'm running out of time, unfortunately. Um, people have been very patient with me. Um, I know that you're probably eyeing, you know, there are drinks and canapes, etc. at the back. Uh, and, you know, I, I do want to keep your attention for just a little bit, because we have Pascal here. Any um, last points you made? But also, are there any questions to Pascal and what you've heard so far from the audience? So before I ask Pascal to come in, any particular, because people had their hands up before, and I said I'd come back to you. A quick, 
Are you too tired and, and fully absorbed by what you've heard that you think, oh my God, let's just get on with it? No, you don't mean that, do you? No, no. No? Nobody? Sure? Going? Are they? Yeah, they're over No, no, not at all. Pascal, say something controversial. which I think uh, shows uh, evidently something uh, which probably was already perceptive uh, for some time, uh, which is that uh, there is a, a real long-term essential uh, connection uh, between uh, the economic dimension, the social dimension, the environmental dimension, and the security dimension. I think it's the first time, and this has been mentioned in the discussion, that these four topics, these four pillars, are so clearly linked at the EU level while recognizing uh, that a lot of things have to happen uh, elsewhere, as was said. And in many ways, if we look at the next step, uh, which is uh, the open election, the setting in of a new power uh, structure, uh, commission, uh, central bank, uh, council, uh, parliament. There is a sort of analogy of uh, what uh, Diamond I call this uh, new European contract with a sort of uh, equation. Now let's, uh, let's take a simple mathematical analogy. Uh, this is about an equation. We know the variables. I just listed the four main variables. Economic, social, environmental, security. What the open action will tell us is uh, what is the range of coefficients in order to solve this equation. And we know that various uh, political uh, parties, uh, streams, will insist more on security, others more on social, others more on environmental, uh, others more on economic competitiveness. This is normal, this is what European politics are about. We have a wide range of coefficients. The elections will tell us what people like as a coefficient for security, environment, social, and uh, economic. And the next step will be for a coalition of parties in the European Parliament to agree on a set of coefficients. This is, in my view, what will have to happen. And we know that these coefficients will be probably more debated than in the times where uh, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats were pulling the shots. So, this will need to be done, and that's the stage after the election. And I let me add a final stage to this process, which is the way the Commission will organize itself as a function of this equation the variables of which we know, the coefficients of which remain to be seen, discussed, negotiated, 
Uh, and this, by the way, has been mentioned uh, both by uh, Martin and by uh, Jenny when saying, you know, if we really want to be serious about environment, we need a vice president of the Commission on Environment. If we really want to be serious about security, we need. There are various ideas of that, but this will have to translate into a commission power structure. And I think, I think this is the way we have to go, following this uh, Friends of Europe exercise. Lots of ideas, proposals, some of which, uh, like the one uh, Caroline uh, outlined, uh, are maybe controversial, but I think there is a basket in which the ones that will have to run the next stage, the Council, uh, the European Council, the Parliament, the Commission, the various candidates, and the outcome of the elections, we will have to mix all this in order to provide us with a stable equation, again, the variables of which I think are clear following the discussion. The coefficients on the variable uh, remain to be seen after a major political uh, event, which is the elections. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just one last opportunity. Anybody else who's like, you know, got the bit between their teeth to actually say something? No? Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for being here. Um, thank you for all our people that have been connected virtually, our reviewers and our contributors who have joined us virtually. Just to say this, it's a very, very simple sentence. That's been our guiding force and our objective. And that's what we've tried to do to create this document. Obviously, uh, an hour or so is, is you know, a short time to be able to really penetrate and understand what's in there. Take time to read it. We are hoping this is, um, we're going to make sure it's not something that just goes on a shelf. Um, because actually, we are driven by this. It's about the future we face and the future we want to, you know, want to align to, if, you know, in terms of the, what the future we want. And some of you might be thinking, why is there a house of cards here? And those of you who've watched Netflix will think, oh my goodness, why, why use that metaphor or imagery? It's got nothing to do with that. Actually, the house of cards comes from a definition which is some 400 years old. And at the back of this page, I'm not going to read it out, have a, have a read at the bottom here where we define what we mean by a house of cards. It's essentially it's a subtle but forceful play of power. And actually it's about how the cards are stacked and how they balance each other and reinforce each other. And what we wanted to say is actually this almost is a metaphor or an analogy for the, for the future EU. If the cards are stacked and balanced accordingly, it'll be a sustainable uh, and forceful house for the future. But if the cards aren't done as such, we're, we're likely to find ourselves undone and consigned to failure. Thank you all very much. There are drinks at the back and some canapes, etc. Thank you all. And please do give us feedback. Tell us honestly what you think about this, because we're going to continue on this journey right through to the end of this year. We're at our annual State of Roundtable. Uh, Vision uh, Europe, or Vision Innovation, as the title of our conference, is going to be the content and the basis of our discussion, which is really forged around this. So all, thank you very much, and stay for something to drink and eat. Thank you all very much. Thank you.